Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues for them. God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had won the victory over the beast its image and the numbers of its name. We're standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and sang and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, kings of the nations. Lord, who who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. Praise be to God. Well, if I was a little distracted a few minutes ago, um, it's because, man, I have been struggling with this passage of Scripture all week long. I mean, this is one of those passages of Scripture you come to and you're like, I don't really know what to do with this. Like, if you don't have some, like, specific framework and some very specific way of understanding kind of the end things, then this is a really tough place to sit. And I think part of of the reason that it's tough to sit is because it's all about the wrath of God. It's all about God's wrath in these two chapters. And, And let's be honest, who wants to think about God's wrath? Like, who likes to think of God as, like, wrathful and angry? I think probably very few people in this room do. Now, it's funny because in seminary and coming up through, through reform networks and reform groups, I can tell you there are two types of seminarians and of like pastor-preacher guys, right? When it comes to God's wrath, there are two types. There are those who want to avoid God's wrath at all costs and not talk about it, and there are those who love to talk about God's wrath. I mean, they just love it, right? They love that God is angry with sin, and they'll paint God as angry, and, and that's a picture of his righteousness, and so they, they absolutely love it. I am in the, sec- the first category, right? I, I don't love to talk about God's wrath. I don't, uh, and I think it's because we misunderstand it, and people misunderstand God's wrath, uh, and so I, I want to approach this, um, and I really want us to, to dig into this idea of God as a wrathful God, because I think it's actually very important that we understand what God's wrath is, what God's anger is, why God is wrathful and angry, and how it is actually an extension of his love. Not just, uh, it's not the primary character trait of God. It's motivated by love for us. So let's, let's jump in here. Um, you may have heard the phrase, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. In our world of outrage, that, that's, a, that's a very popular phrase, right? If you're not angry, you, you ain't paying attention. And it's not limited just to one political category or one political group or the other. Everybody's mad about something. I mean, it seems like everybody is just indignant about all kinds of things. And if you run in certain circles, man, they're, they're going to want you to be mad about this and mad about that and, and mad about this thing over here. There's, there's so much in the world to be angry about. And in a culture of outrage, we we manufacture outrage and anger even where we don't even need to be angry. But people love it. People love to feel angry. Look, and as someone who like enjoys the feeling of anger, I enjoy the adrenaline, I enjoy the rush. Like as someone who who is already kind of wired that way, I get it. But man, this it's exhausting to live in a constant stage of outrage. 
It's just exhausting to live in a constant state of indignation about the things of the world, about the, the things that you see going wrong. And then compound that with the, the fact that oftentimes you don't know what you're supposed to be mad about. Or the things you're supposed to be mad about conflict with one another. Like, I'm supposed to be mad about this thing over here, but I'm also supposed to be mad about this thing over here. And then, on top of all that, in a polarized world, I'm supposed to hate the people who either aren't mad about the things that I think you're supposed to be mad about, or are mad about other stuff. And it just gets so confusing and exhausting, and I don't know what to do with myself. And what do I do? What do you do in, in a world that wants you to be outraged about everything, where there are millions of things to be legitimately angry about, and it can become so overwhelming, what do you do? How do you handle that? Because if I'm looking at the world through a biblical lens, if I'm looking at the world through the lens of my God, and I see the brokenness and the sinfulness and the injustice and the inequities and the pain of the world, I ought to be angry about it. It's true. I should be mad about that because God is angry about it. Our God is absolutely fiery angry about everything that hurts his people or hurts the people that he loves. God is incensed about all of this. And God knows exactly what to be angry about and how to be angry about it. And you know, the truth is we need that. We need our God to be angry about the wrongs of the world. We need our God to be angry about injustice because only he can bring about true justice. Because only he can actually fix the things that are wrong that we should be mad about. Only he can, can cut to the quick and, and judge rightly what we should be mad about and what we shouldn't be mad about. And only he ultimately can fix it. Only he ultimately can bring about an end to all of the things that we see wrong in our world. That's why it's good that we have a wrathful God. But the fact that God is wrathful, the fact that God is angry means that we can trust him to bring about proper justice and proper righteousness at the right time, and we don't have to take every incidence of justice into our own hands. And so that's what I think these chapters teach us. I think that's where they point us today. What do you do in the face of raging injustice and oppression in the world? And how does God's anger at those things help us to learn how to engage them? How does it help us to learn how to be able to live our lives in the joy that he calls us to while also holding this anger at injustice? There's a, an episode of, of The Chosen. If you're not watching The Chosen, you should be. Right? I don't say you should about much because I don't like it, but if you aren't watching The Chosen, you, you absolutely should be. So in episode three of The Chosen, the, the title of this episode is Jesus Loves the Little Children. And Jesus is kind of camping out by a river, and these little kids find him. These like 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids find him camping by this river, and uh, they start going to see him every day. And he's teaching them the scriptures, and he's teaching them his way. And he has this one conversation. He's got the, the kids in front of him. So this is, I love the imagination of this show, right? This is his first group of disciples here. Jesus is there and he's being a rabbi and he's teaching these little, these kids who are, some are in Torah school because they're boys and then the girls aren't, the girls are still at home, but they're, they're learning the scriptures from their moms. And Jesus is teaching them all equally 
holding them on an equal footing, right? And Jesus asks them about their day. And this one kid is telling him about an incident that happened during the day where another kid wronged him. And so he got back at him. He wanted to get back at him. And so he did. And Jesus begins to ask him questions. And he begins to ask the kids questions. And this is what Jesus says to them. What does the Lord say in the law of Moses about justice and vengeance? So the little girl who first discovered Jesus in this camp says, vengeance is mine. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. And Jesus responds, yes, very good, very good. The Lord loves justice, but maybe it's not ours to handle. Do you remember when David had the chance to kill King Saul, who was evil to him? But he didn't. Saul was God's anointed, and it was not the right time for justice. And God says he will have compassion on his people when what? And then this other boy answers, uh, when their strength is gone. Jesus says, yes, very good. So maybe we let God provide the justice, huh? Maybe we handle these things in a different way, not trying to be the strongest all the time. And so to the boy who stood up for himself against this bully, for the boy who got back at this kid who was giving him a hard time, Jesus says, maybe you don't have to be the strongest all the time. Maybe it's not on you to bring justice to this situation. Maybe you need to rely on God's justice and you can respond to this situation differently. Maybe you can respond with gentleness. Maybe you can respond with kindness to this bully. Maybe God sees more clearly what's happening in that kid's life and in your life than you see. And what if, what if your sense of justice isn't God's sense of justice? What if your judgment of a situation isn't God's judgment of a situation? What if in all of your indignation, you think you are doing the just and right and good thing, but because of your limited human insight into every situation, and because of your own fallenness and sinfulness and self-centeredness, what you think is just in a given situation actually isn't. Because God sees all. Because God knows all. Because God is the only one who looks at the human heart and judges rightly. So what if it isn't about us bringing justice all the time? What if instead to follow the way of Jesus, to be able to turn the other cheek, to be able to respond with gentleness and kindness when we are offended or oppressed, what if in order to do that, we need to rely on God's justice? We need to rely on the Lord and believe him when he says, vengeance is mine. And understand that when God says vengeance is mine, he is telling me it's not yours. You don't see clearly enough. In that same conversation Jesus is having with the little kids, when the boy says, I wanted to, to take vengeance, I wanted to take retribution, the boy says to Jesus, well, doesn't Torah tell us eye for an eye? And Jesus responds to him, oh, are you a judge? Is this a court of law? You aren't equipped to apply the law rightly. You're not a judge, child. And therefore, you should respond differently. And here in Revelation, as God is giving this vision to the Apostle John, and he's writing to these Christians who are oppressed, living in oppression, living under the thumb of the Roman Empire, losing their livelihoods because of following Jesus, struggling day after day, John is here reminding them with this vision that vengeance is not yours. It is the Lord's that all things will be made right. Maybe not in the timing that you would wish them to be made right. 
Maybe not in the way that you would wish them to be made right. Maybe, suffering Christian, your version of justice is to rise up in revolt against the local government of your city that is putting you down. Maybe, oppressed Christian, your version of justice is to rise up against the synagogue and to war against the Jewish community. Maybe that's what you think is just right now. But John is reminding them that's not for you to, to do. That's not for you to bring about. Justice is in God's hands. And we must trust in Him. So what's the first response to the brokenness and pain of the world? What is the first and right response of the church to a God who is angry with all of the injustices and all of the struggles and pains of His people? Well, we read it right here in the first few chapters of verse, uh, first few verses of chapter 15. What, what Terry read for us. The first response of a faithful people to the anger of God at sin and injustice in the world is to sing His praise. The first and right reaction to the wrath and anger of God is worship. We see that right here. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. So these are the people who are surrounding Jesus in heaven, looking up at, up at Jesus. They have, they have not given their allegiance over to Rome. They've not given their allegiance over to the powers of the world or to the sinful things of the world. They've given their allegiance to King Jesus, to the Lamb who was slain on their behalf. And they've not followed or worshipped the beast, who in this case is the empire of the world, the, the Roman Empire. And they sing this song to Jesus. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. Now this song is sung in response to these bowls of God's wrath being brought out by seven angels. So far in Revelation, we've seen these cycles of judgments come. We've seen these seven seals being opened on this scroll that represents God's plan for human history. And then we've seen seven angels blow seven trumpets, and we've seen the earth face judgment. But, but it's always been limited. Well, what happened before under the seven seals being broken and the seven trumpets being blown, the judgment was always limited. It was either only done for a short time or it was only done to part of the world. But here in these bold judgments, in, in the wrath of God that is being poured out in these bowls that these angels are holding, we're going to see total and complete destruction for everything that opposes God. For everything that opposes God and His people. And so that's where we are. We have the faithful in heaven singing worship and praise to the God because of His holy wrath. And now we see these bowls being poured out, these bowls of God's wrath. And so if we could get away in the first seven seals and the seven trumpets with saying, this was God allowing the nations to rage. This was God allowing pain on the earth. This was God kind of withholding his hand, withdrawing his hand and allowing the evils of the world to kind of have their way. Here in chapter 16, it cannot be doubted that God is the agent here of this judgment. God is the one pouring out his anger and his wrath upon the nations of the world, upon everything and everyone who opposes Christ and his church, who opposes his people. 
And so in these first four bowls that are poured out, we see God's judgment upon the earth, upon the land and the salt water and the fresh water, and then upon the heavens as God pours out his wrath and the sun is made more intense and it burns down as his wrath is poured out and the rivers and the oceans turn to blood. And these are supposed to make you think of the plagues against Egypt way back in the Exodus. You're supposed to, when you read these, think about Moses bringing forth God's plagues on the Egyptians. And the the corollary is clear here. Christians suffering under Rome, Rome is to you as Egypt was to the Israelites. Rome is to you just as Egypt was to God's faithful people there. And to everybody who would come after you, to everyone who would come after these first Christians who are hearing this, wherever you are suffering oppression, wherever you are suffering persecution, wherever you are suffering because of your faithfulness to Yahweh and to his Christ, that the oppressor is Egypt. The oppressor is Rome. The oppressor is the agent of the beast, the agent of the dragon, the agent of Satan. We talked a lot last week about spiritual warfare. And now John and Jesus want his, the followers of Jesus to know that when they face oppression and persecution and they struggle under the thumb of some government or some system or some authority, they are suffering at the hands of Satan himself, of the enemy of God's people. But that the enemy of God's people, Satan, the beast, these have an ultimate end. It will not last forever. And then we see in the fourth and fifth bowls, as the bowl of God's wrath is poured out and the sun is made scorching, and then in the fifth bowl, we see uh, these kings of the, of the earth kind of come up and, and the, the people are hurting and they're, they've got sores because of the sun. Uh, in the fourth and fifth bowl, we read that people still didn't repent. They're suffering under the judgments of God. And so you see these two reactions to God's wrath. For the followers of Jesus, for the faithful ones, for the, for the followers of the Lamb and the ones who love Jesus and, and are connected to Him, God's wrath elicits praise and worship. To know that God will bring an ultimate end to evil. To know that God will destroy sin. To know that God will ultimately judge the nations of the earth brings the followers of Jesus comfort and peace and they rise up in worship and praise of their God. But to those who are not allied to Jesus... To those who are allied to the systems of the world, to those who are benefiting and gaining from the sinful, broken systems of the world and from the empires of the world, God's wrath only elicits anger and blasphemy. So we see these two possible reactions to God's wrath. There are those who worship him for it because they realize it is an extension of his love for God to bring justice for his people is to love them and to assure them that they will not suffer forever. But for God to bring justice, for God to bring wrath upon the sinful and wicked systems of the world, elicits only anger and blasphemy from everyone else. They can't handle it. They can't imagine a God who would do something like this. They can't imagine a God who would pour out wrath on the world. They can't imagine a God who would harm anyone even sinful, broken systems. And it's, it's, it's crazy ironic that even as people rage against systemic brokenness and systemic sin, even as people rage against the systems that lead to oppression, they refuse to believe in a wrathful God who can end that oppression. Because they don't want to believe in God's wrath. 
They don't want to believe in the anger of God. And so it's natural. It's natural if you live in a hopeless state. It's natural if you live in a hopeless state and you are oppressed and you are persecuted and you are struggling to reach out and to respond in violence because that's what you've got. You don't have authority or a voice or power to speak out. And if you don't have faith in a wrathful God who will bring justice and judgment upon the wicked systems of the world, all you've got is to respond in anger and rioting. All you've got is to respond in violence because you don't have a voice because no one's going to hear you. And you ultimately don't have a God who's going to bring justice to this situation. But if we look back to the nonviolent movements of the past, if we look back to the nonviolent civil rights movements and the nonviolent movements for liberation and freedom around the world, they are rooted in the idea that a God can bring justice. And that even if I suffer for now, even if I suffer temporarily in the here and now, ultimately, justice and peace and security are in the hands of my good and loving God. It is only by believing in a wrathful God who will bring judgment upon the sin and brokenness of the world that I can live as Jesus. I can respond with a gentle word. I can respond in love and nonviolence only by believing that God will ultimately make an end to the brokenness and sinfulness of the world can I then respond as Jesus calls me to and live and love as Jesus calls me to. That's my only path forward. Otherwise, I have to live in a constant state of anxiety or in constant indignation. Otherwise, I have to rise up in violence to counter the violence of the world. But Jesus says, no, we live differently. We leave justice to God. We leave wrath to God. I can't trust my own sense of justice. I can't trust my own sense of wrath. I can't trust my own anger because I'm too fallen. There's too much sin in me. There's too much self-centeredness. There's too much self-interest in me to trust my own sense of justice and of wrath. I have to be able to trust in a good and holy God. And so we see in the fourth and fifth bowls, the people who are under God's wrath responding in anger and in blasphemy, not in repentance, not seeing on display the holiness and love of God, but seeing only the consequences to themselves. And so they respond in the sixth bowl by rising up an army. And this is where we get the, the idea of Armageddon. Now, Armageddon is not a day, it's not a time, it's not a word for the end of the world. Armageddon is a place. It's Megiddo. It's the place where the armies of those who are opposed to God gather together here in the sixth bowl. This is their response to God's wrath. This is their response to the judgment of God on the nations of the world. They've been angered, they've been enraged, and so the people begin to gather an army. Now, here's the crazy thing. We don't see any battle in these bowls. We don't see any battle after that. We see the armies are assembling at Megiddo, at Armageddon. They're ready to make war on God. And then the seventh bowl comes, and we just see Jesus return. Once again, just as in the seals and the trumpets, this last bowl is the return of Jesus. Now, how do we know that? We know that because the imagery is exactly the same. Thunder and lightning and earthquakes and darkness. All of these images that came up in the prophet Joel, and then came up in Jesus' words in Matthew 24, and then came up in the seven seals, and then came up in the seven trumpets, are now coming up here in the seventh bowl. 
And when, when you see consistency like that in Scripture, you have to understand they're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about the same time. And so in the seventh, the, the armies of, God, of God's enemies are all gathered together at Megiddo, ready to make war upon God, ready to make war upon God's people. And God's response is not to build up an army against them and to come against them. God's response is not to make war on them. God's response is for Jesus to return. And then they're just kind of struck in awe. I mean, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great cities split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people. And they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. So the army is gathered at Megiddo. Man, they're ready to make war. They're all like, they're shouting, they're beating their shields, they're excited, they're going to bring war on God's people. And God is like, boom! And it's done. And they scatter and flee. God doesn't even have to make war on them. Jesus returns, and the nations are scattered. And Babylon is judged. Now, in Revelation, the word Babylon always means Rome. Always means the Roman Empire. And it means any empire or government that is opposed to God's people. And so here, in chapter 16, God's people are being reassured, though you suffer now, though you struggle now, though there is pain now, though the empire looks all-powerful, and it looks like there's no way that you could be victorious over them. Though you may lose your life in the here and now, a day of judgment is coming and Babylon will fall. Your oppressor will fall. The kingdom that puts you down and wants to see you brought to death will fall. And it will take no effort on the part of God to scatter all of those super-powerful empires of the world. That it doesn't take any effort on God's part, to destroy the oppression that stands against you, to destroy the empires that stand against you, opposed to you. In the meantime, Christian, your mission, your job, first, is simply to worship. Let your heart be moved by this truth to worship your good and perfect and holy and kind and joyful and wrathful God. Let your heart be moved just as those in heaven when they saw the angels coming forward with the bowls of God's wrath. Let your heart be moved to sing His praises, to sing His worship, to seek Him above all things. You want to know how to respond to injustice and brokenness and all of the things in the world that should make you angry because they make your God angry? Worship your God. Begin in worship of your God. Worship is your weapon. Worship is your weapon against the enemy. Yes, singing songs of worship and praying to your God and keeping Jesus in front of your face and speaking about Him and loving Him in the presence of others and serving Him and doing for Him and living a life completely devoted to Jesus Christ, living a life completely devoted to this wrathful, loving God who will bring judgment is your response to injustice in the world. That's where we begin. 
Because it's only as we worship our God that we understand what his will and his desire is for us. It's only in being given over to him and worshiping him with our lives, keeping our eyes focused on him, that we can understand what he's calling us to and how he's calling us to address the pains and brokenness of the world. I dare not stand up and engage in any kind of action until I know that it's what my God would want me to do. And the only way I can know that it's what my God would want me to do is to remain in an attitude of worship and of praise to Him. To fill my ears with songs of His goodness and of His justice and of His rightness. To fill my mind with His Word. To fill my heart with His love. To allow His Holy Spirit to live in me and work through me and rearrange me. It's only by centering myself entirely upon my good and beautiful God that I can know what He wants me to do with these hands and with these feet. That I can know what to engage with and what to do and what I need to just leave into His hands. And so worship, saying our response to injustice and brokenness in the world first is to worship is not to say we are to be inactive. It's to say we are to be wholly active. We are to do what our holy God calls us to do. We are to live as our holy God calls us to live. And so when we worship and we center ourselves on Him, that's when we can know that what we are doing is in line with Him for His glory and for His justice in the world. Not just to take up any old definition of what justice is. Not just to take up any old definition of what right and good is but to be so inundated with the Holy Spirit of God, to be so connected to my God and to His goodness and to His purposes for the world that I know when I raise my hand to do something, I am doing the will of the Father in heaven. That's what worship does for me. It arranges my priority in life so that I can know when I act, I am acting on the authority and behalf of my good God. And I am doing justice on his behalf. I am seeking his purposes. I am seeking his shalom, his perfection. And so we would do well not to do anything rashly. Not to do anything out of of reactionism. But to do everything prayerfully and worshipfully. And trust that in the end, our God has justice in his hands. And he will bring it about. That's what it means to live for God. That's what it means to live for Christ. And that is the only way we can live joyful lives in the here and now and not be overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world. If I know God has everything in his hands, if I can trust him to do justice in the world, if I can trust him in his wrath to bring about his good and right purposes, then I can live my life with joy and know that I don't have to hold all those things. I don't have to be faithful to fix every problem of the world. I only have to be faithful with what he's given me right now. He's not asking you to fix every problem of the world. He's asking you to be faithful with what he's placed in your hands. And you can only do that if you live your life in an attitude and a posture of worship. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us to your worship. Not because you're an egomaniac, but because you know that to worship you is the best thing we can do for ourselves and for our neighbors and for our world. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised to bring about justice. Thank you, Father, for your wrath. That you will bring true justice 
in the end and we can trust you completely and wholly. God, I pray that we would trust you and that you would move us as a people to live in an attitude and a posture of worship, to fill our ears with your songs, to let our heart be moved by your Holy Spirit, to fill our minds and our hearts with your word, to understand your will for our lives and for the world so that we can see where you are calling us to action and where you are calling us to simply trust. God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your holiness. Thank you for your goodness and for your rightness. Thank you for your love and for your justice. And it is in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.